Welcome to The Refuge, a CERC podcast to share our research with practitioners and communities. I'm so excited because today I have really, really awesome guests. Um, I'm going to start with, you know, how I'm seeing you on my screen. I'm just going to start with Fida Alfandi. She's 18 um, and goes to David and Mary Thompson. And she came to Canada five years ago. I also have Joanne Pardy, a professor of linguistics and adjunct professor of communication sciences and disorders at the University of Alberta. Her primary focus is bilingualism in children with typical and atypical uh, development, especially children learning English as a second language. And we have Mazen El Baba, uh, the founder and director of Happy, a not-for-profit organization that works with children who have faced adversity throughout their development. Mazen has developed and supported local and international programs that support at-risk youth, which include summer camp programs for refugee children and mental health. Thanks for coming to the uh, refuge today. Thank you for having us, Drea. Yeah, well, thank you. you know, I'm just gonna start with you, Fida. Uh, could you tell me a bit how the last five years have been for you since you moved to Canada? Um, I would say the first like couple years were very hard, but then like the last two years were it was pretty normal. Like I felt like I finally belong here. Yeah, I can totally relate. I'm almost five five years to myself now. And <laughs> Joanne, um, so tell us a little bit about some of the research you've done with Cirque. Well, uh, myself and my colleagues um, in Toronto and in Waterloo, Ontario. So, and I'm in Edmonton. We're conducting a study, a long longitudinal study. So that means we study the same group of kids, children and youth over time. And these are all um, uh, children and youth who are like FIDA. They came about five years ago and we're tracking their language, their literacy in both languages and their socio-emotional well-being um, as they sort of settle in and integrate into Canadian society. Mm. Amazon happy. I almost made a mistake of calling, calling H.A.P.P.I. I don't know why. <laughs> but uh, you, you want to tell me a little bit about happy? I know it's a, it's a, the name is a little confusing, but it, it was a bit serendipitous the way we came up with it. But it is, as you said, it's a not-for-profit organization that primarily works with uh, children and youth that have faced adversity throughout their development. And that, and you know, as you know, can mean anything um, and so we're pretty inclusive uh, when it comes to the adversity that uh, we, we are we see in, in the children and youth that we serve mm. um, and uh, and of course uh, as as you know in 2015 when uh, when Canada welcomed a lot of the Syrian refugees uh, we uh, definitely felt like this was definitely within our domain and something that we're passionate about. And especially me being uh, Lebanese, born and raised abroad, it was a cause that was near and dear to me. And so um, it was natural that that we did something to uh, help integrate the youth into the Canadian community. Uh, Joanne, you know, with with your research and with language learning, uh, you know, especially with refugees, considering that, uh, what are some impacts that trauma might have when it comes to learning language? 
Yeah, well, this is um, a really interesting question because uh, this is not something that people have done a lot of research on. People have researched the effects of um, some adverse uh, adversity, like like uh, experiences with trauma or frequent transitions or interrupted schooling, and and um, they're often the experiences of refugee children and youth. People have studied the effects on. Um, academic outcomes and uh, general development, but there hasn't been much research on language and literacy. And so that was one of the gaps we wanted to fill with our study. And certainly we're finding that um, it affects especially uh, uh, behaviors like hyperactivity. We find uh, time spent in a refugee camp before coming to to Canada, uh, parental education. Uh, many refugee families from, uh, from this in the Syrian cohort, not all of them, but many have parents with very low levels of education and like only a few years of primary school and that affects their integration into Canada and affects how much they can help their children integrate mm -hmm. into Canada. So this is an adversity factor. Crowded housing. Many of our families live in are low income because they're newcomers and they have lots of kids. So they live in crowded, not terribly optimal housing. Many of our families, again, not all. And we find that all these things do make a difference in how quickly they learn English, um, how quickly they learn to, to speak and to read um, English. Um, mm. So th th to us, one of the things that we're really excited about in our research program is that these we are, we're discovering that these things matter and they matter as uh, in addition to all the other things that we already knew about bilingual children. You know, that mm. if they if they have a richer English environment at home, then they do better in English at school, etc. Um, so we already knew this, those things going into this program. But um, the insights that studying the Syrian cohort has given us is all these things that we often don't associate in particular with language actually mm. matter as well. Mm. Um, yeah, you know, those are some things that most people don't think of. So that research uh, you and your team doing is really, really important. Fida, I I'm wondering, do you have an English, did you have a English background before moving to Canada? Well, um, in school, we learned English as a subject, but I was really bad. Like, I think I remember like the teacher coming in class and like saying, like, we would have to stand up and like, say like things in English and I would just mouth the things that we we're supposed to say because I didn't know what they are but mm. somehow like everyone in the class knew what it was so I was very bad when I came I think I only knew hello <laughs> and apple I mean I've known Fida since she she come to Canada about five years ago you were one of the confident um I would say children amongst the people that joined the camp and and I was always amazed by how you wanted to put yourself forward to learn the language. Mm. I mean, would you have would you would you do you think you were confident? I'm curious to know. I mean, from me it looked like you were like you really wanted to put your out yourself out there and actually try to speak English. I'm curious to actually get a, an insight about how you actually felt. Um well, I just wanted to fit in so badly. So I was like mm. I'm just going to put myself into this like I'm just going to do it and fit in there good for you mm, mm. you yeah. know and that's something that you know i want to talk about a little bit now with you Mads, and the fitting uh phrase that fida mentioned mm. 
you've had a background of actually not growing up here, moving to Canada, and then uh, you know building a life with your family. Um, did you have such a something similar, like a similar experience where you had to fit in? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think what's what's interesting to me about children and youth in general is that there's some universal qualities or some universal characteristics that are shared amongst all children and youth, no matter where they come from. And that's that's their wanting to be part of a community, mm -hmm. wanting to belong, wanting to build friendships, wanting to have mm -hmm. their families safe and sound. You know, for a child, as long as mom and dad are okay, it doesn't matter, you know, what the actual income of the house is. It doesn't actually matter. As long as their parents are there and they're happy, that's what a child sees mm -hmm. and feels. Um, and it's, it's the stressors that parents sort of take on and try to absorb, mm -hmm. but the child, again, they have their friends, they have their family, they're happy and put them anywhere in the world, they're happy. And so that was certainly my my experience coming here. I, I Similar to Fida, I, I knew a few words. I learned English as a mm. subject in, in Lebanon, but I was trying to really hard to fit in grade seven children can be, as you probably can attest, um, quite vicious <laughs> in their approach. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the start of puberty is uh, <laughs> right, right. You know, <laughs> a tough time for anyone involved, and so and so. Yeah, you you want to belong, as Fida was alluding to, and and you want to feel loved by your peers, and want to feel like you're, you know, developing your personality, personality, and being accepted by the people around you. And so language becomes extremely important because it's our way of conveying our thoughts, feelings, emotions. And if we're being unheard or if we're unable to convey whatever message we have, then we automatically become shunned. And that is catastrophic for our mental health mm -hmm. or well-being, especially for yeah. you know a young child who's going through puberty, developing their identity and, and trying to assert their independence in the world. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's it, it's interesting for me, Mazen, when you when you talk about this situation because I'm thinking about well, here's the, I'm the only person in this group who's not a, an immigrant, so I have no personal insights <laughs> to give. But but from the research study that that we're doing, we certainly find that the uh, children and youth in our study who have the the wider the friendship circle that happens in English. Because we ask about language use with with friends, um, and also language use with siblings. Because for many of the the children in our study, the big families mean they they spend a lot of time with their siblings, and we find that the uh, more English use does advance their their um, English language and literacy from you know the sort of academic aspects of their English language and literacy. But here's the thing that is difficult: is that the more they speak um, English with each other, the siblings, after a couple of years, their Arabic starts to sink a, a, a little bit. And, and mm. you know, we come from the perspective in our research group that we want to promote bilingualism. Mm. We don't want mm. one mm. language to be at the expense of the other. And we know mm. that they don't have to be. So there's always a balance, I think. Um, although with most friends at school, there's no choice. It happens in, in English. But when there is a choice, sometimes keeping up some connections and socializing in Arabic are also important um, mm. for long-term development uh, and family cohesion, identity development, family cohesion, and, and things like that. So um, so I, I see from my data, again, not a personal perspective, but from the data, I see both sides. 
Yeah, no, that's actually true. And it's something I never actually thought of. But I notice more like if I'm calling my mom or calling someone back home, I tend to speak in English, even if they are speaking my local language. Like, I understand what they are saying, but then I reply mm. in English. And I didn't even think of that till you mentioned that, actually. Um, wow. On, <laughs> on reflection... I think as a as a child, I may have been a little resentful towards Arabic because I just felt it wasn't useful uh, to me as to, to achieve my goal of fitting in. Yeah. So I think yeah. I, I even attempted to not speak Arabic as much as I can so that I can improve my English language skills. Mm. So that yeah. because it was a huge motivator to actually acquire those skills to be able to, to fit in society here. Mm. Yeah. Um, COVID happened. The world pretty much shut down. Everyone had to, you know, except for emergency workers, pretty much everyone was working from home. How did that affect your research, if it did in any way, Joanne? Oh, uh, well, we, um, because our study was longitudinal, like over time, we have, uh, we visited families once a year before the pandemic, and then the pandemic hit. So we had to wait a few months, because at first, at the beginning, you know, everyone thought it would just be a few months, and we'd be back to normal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Nobody knew how long it was really going to go on. So yeah. after that, we actually um, did all our meetings, interviews with families, and uh, testing the participants' English uh, over uh, online. So um, it was a big challenge. Some families, we had to give them devices and help them with the internet and everything because not uh, some of our families had all that all down pat and other families had fewer resources. So, mm. um, but we, so we, we did manage to keep going even though there was a pandemic, but it's, it's different, you know, just being kind of online as opposed to being there in, in person. Um, mm. But we found out um you know, one of the things, the insights the pandemic gave us is how vulnerable many of um, our families in our study were because they, um, because many of them had limited resources and a lot of kids trying to cope with school from home mm. and with parents who don't really speak English very well. Um, their parents were saying, you know, was there, it's been it's been a struggle. Like not everybody, some people, it was much smoother than others. But mm. on average, I'd say more than half the families um, really had a struggle to make sure their kids could do online schooling, that they could uh, had they had a sufficient devices and bandwidth, and that, that they could make sure their children got what they needed. So um, I think what we'll see when we look at our data is that a lot of the, the uh, children in use, their, their English skills might have gone either plateaued or gone a little bit down. Um, due to the pandemic, which is something to keep in mind for when they're back in school live in September, that um, depending on how much, you know, what, what was going on in their homes during so-called online learning, mm. um, <laughs> you know, teachers might see a lot of variation in, in how much kids advanced or didn't advance, you know, in the previous mm. academic year. Yeah. And how was that experience for you? Um, I agree with um, Joanne uh, because like because of online learning, I feel like my English like went back a little bit because um, right now like I can't even write with a pencil properly. I don't know why my fingers like get hurt with writing with pencil, so I'm just used to a keyboard. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, my spelling and grammar actually really went back too because um. I can just, you know, use like Grammarly or any app and like it would just solve the spelling mistakes for me. 
and mm. I don't really have to do much about it. Uh-huh. It's like, it's like the play. calculator. I'm sorry, you made me laugh because I used Gravity a lot, a lot. <laughs> I use Gravity so much. But, yeah, yeah, no cycle. Yeah, Can like, you understand? I, I really can't spell now anymore. Like, even, like, small words, like, I really forget how to spell. Because, like, it just autocorrects for you all the time. Mm. Oh, yeah. Mm. It's like using a calculator to make a simple addition. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? I, I'm, I'm of the, I'm of the older generation where there was controversy when we got calculators at school <laughs> because they thought yeah. we'd lose all our arithmetic skills. And, <laughs> and we have. <laughs> <laughs> so imagine, yeah. um, you know, as, as someone has worked with um, refugee and, like, what are some, with what Joanne and Fida have spoken about COVID and how it's affected language learning, what are some things you think instructors and uh, other people that are working in not-for-profits, what are things they should prepare for when the students come back in September? I mean, I think the, the bottom line is uh, the students want to learn. Uh, we, we already mm -hmm. talked about the motivation of... Yeah. Uh, acquiring these skills, mm -hmm. uh, so I think I think having the patience uh, from an instructor's point of view and and from the family's point of view to to support the children, um, I think that's that's key. Um, but also be individualized. Uh, we tend to, for funding reasons or or you know physical logistics within a school, tend to have a all size fit you know, model where the teacher tries to uh, create content that is generally fitting for, for the whole class. But we know with, with, with refugees or children in general, everyone is at different levels. Uh, mm -hmm. And especially with refugees that come from different parts of the world or different socioeconomical backgrounds, education, income, etc. Mm -hmm. They all come from wildly, wildly different uh, language, English language levels or just language skill levels even in their native language or their or the new language that they're trying to acquire. Mm. So it's it's I think the onus falls on the on the system to ensure that, you know, we're we're creating modules or we're creating a curriculum or a learning environment that is effective for every single child. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think we're there yet. And I don't think we're there yet no. because of resources and because of the financial burden that they would cost the system. But I mean, it, I don't I think it's a no brainer that you have children that have different needs. Um, the motivation is there because it's it's as as we're saying universal. Uh, but mm -hmm. uh, but the the skill level is, is definitely varying depending on backgrounds. Yeah. Well, can I just jump in here? Because I think, you know, what you're bringing up is very interesting and, and I'm very much in agreement with it. But I'd like to focus it a little bit just on, say, English second language learners. So not just like all children in a, in a classroom, but English second language learners in particular. I think that one of the things, because I've been studying English second language learners for a long time and, and you know, um, some from you know immigrant backgrounds, refugee backgrounds, different kinds of backgrounds. And 
I think that what one of the things teachers really need to um, have more awareness of, and I think hopefully podcasts like this will help, um, is that not all English language learners have the same needs. So it's not like, oh yeah, English language learner equals special needs of a certain kind. That, that some come from backgrounds where they're highly supported by highly educated professional parents and high SES, they're resourced families, families where parents come here knowing the language well. Um, mm. It's not like you ignore those kids and don't think they have any needs, but they're less, they have fewer needs than kids who um, say they missed years of schooling back in their home country, say they had uh, um, different, they had to transition between two other countries before they came to Canada. They mm -hmm. might, um, parents might have a lot of struggles adapting here. They might be dealing with um, mental health issues because of trauma. And so not looking at all English language learners as the same set of um, special group, you know, like that, that knowing that there's some members within that group that might need more attention than others. And it might help teachers to know how to uh, um, divide their time. Because um, I used to be a classroom teacher. And I can tell you that it is a real challenge trying to give each child the education that they need when you've got mm -hmm. a class of 30. It's a real challenge. And you're so right that, you know, resources need to be there that, that, that aren't and teachers are trying their best. But so this is just one little piece of advice I'd like to, to put out there for English second language learners. Get, get to know which ones or find out which ones are the really most vulnerable. And if you've got energy and efforts and things to, to, to spare, then, then focus on those kids. I don't know what you think about this, Joanne, but I, I find that when resources are scarce, expert resources are scarce, then near peer resources are plenty. Right. And so um, mm -hmm. I, th I think I've once heard you allude to uh, the importance of siblings helping each other with languages uh, and, and, and how a sibling can play a huge role in aiding the other sibling in developing an English language skill. And so, you know, if we create a model where we have near peers, it doesn't just have to be sibling. It could yeah. be someone who already learned a second language at a higher mm -hmm. level is paired with someone who is at a lower level and they become sort of like mentors, English mentors for mm -hmm. one another. So having a, a near peer curriculum, um, I think it is something that would be, I wouldn't call it like groundbreaking because it's been shown to be effective in other parts of you know, other type of learning, but I think mm -hmm. it is worth to try um, in, in, a, in a resource poor settings like schools. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, I mean, there's many schools in Edmonton that have um, after school homework clubs and um, really focusing on English second language learners where um, there's also, um, there's uh, mentors who are other more experienced, older English second language learners, but also uh, kids who come to volunteer who are native English speakers, even some adults. And the idea is to bring in community resources to, to help because you know teachers just don't have all the resources they need. Um, and these kind of models can be really effective. And I think also when it comes to homework, uh, which you know is extremely problematic giving too much homework to children when they're too young for a diverse society okay I don't want to get started on that one but you know I think that uh, too much homework is given to kids too young um, where it just ends up being you know middle-class parents like myself who'd actually do the homework instead of the kids but this is this is can be a real conundrum for families where the parents are not yet there in English and you know they can't help their kids but maybe older siblings because 
Uh, kids who arrive um, older are often a little faster to learn English than kids who arrive younger. And this may sound counterintuitive, but we're just talking about initial speed here. In the long run, those who arrive younger tend to, to be um, have stronger, more monolingual-like English skills than the ones who arrived older, on average. But in the beginning, the older arrivals have advantages. So in a large family, it might be the case that the older siblings, um, and also because they're just more cognitively mature, can help the younger siblings at home with homework because they'll probably have a bit of an edge in the English in the beginning and they'll just be able to navigate the system a little bit easier. And um, so that way, especially when I think about how large, well, I guess from my perspective as a Canadian, these families seem large, but from other countries, they're not. <laughs> but four kids is a big family to me. Um, but that could be a, a real benefit to have siblings um, helping each other through this process of learning the language and achieving social inclusion. Mm. Uh, I want to touch a little bit. You mentioned, Fida, that, you know, because of online learning and just being on your computer, your English language learning has suffered a bit. What are some things you think that would help bring that back to a level it was or even better than it was before? Um, I think basically what I'm, I'm going to start to do is um, I picked like going back to school and not online school for next year. Because mm. even my marks actually like went down a lot. So mm. I think that maybe teachers actually like having patience because it's not just me, like even my friends who are born like Canadians, mm -hmm. they also have a problem too with language too right now. So I think that I think teachers just should have patience and like work slowly with children for to get their English and memory back. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I was, I was thinking about, Fida, I'd like to, your thoughts on this. Um, looking at the families that lived in the core of Toronto and, and, and thinking of, of, through my conversation, this is all anecdotal, uh, in the families that lived in the outskirts of Toronto or even looking at different countries of how they integrated refugees, like in Germany, in, in small towns, mm -hmm. um, I felt that those children were um, more forced to get out of their comfort zone and speak English or learn English faster to fit in uh, compared to children that, you know, were, were living in large compounds uh, that had Arabic speakers all around them and didn't have that push or motivation to speak English because they already belonged. So I'm curious to know if that was your experience, Fida, or if you saw that in your peers that um, had people speaking their own language who did not speak or did not excel in English at first and how that changed over time um yes so basically um I remember because I lived in a building where there wasn't actually any Arab or Syrian people around me mm -hmm. and even the school I think I was the only Arab person there so I think I was like kind of forced to learn it and to try mm -hmm. to fit it but then I realized that there are other people who live like in compound like uh, other buildings with other um, Syrian refugees with them they didn't even care about English like they just hang out mm. with the Arab people and it th I think they were like you know it was teams like the Arab people and then they're like the Canadian English people mm. and they wouldn't like they would rarely talk to each other mm. that's interesting mm. But it makes sense yeah. because you already belong. So why right, why try? Right. Yeah. yeah, you don't need to fit in when you're already part of a, a cohort. Yeah. Like, even yes. in high school, right now, it's still like happening, I think. 
like when I go to school and ha like right now I feel like kids there like the Syrian kids are always together and like they don't even try to interact with other non-Syrian people like they're still mm -hmm. stick even though like they've been in Canada for five years they're still sticking with the Syrian people and not trying to learn English that's why they're still in ESL mm. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the, you know, getting back to what we talked about a little at the beginning, it's, it's striking that balance, like, because, you know, we know that, that you know, from a research perspective, um, is that, you know, you keep it for, for new newcomer families, it is better so to keep the heritage language and not drop it completely, like you, mm. you, you want to keep that language going, it, it's, it's, there's so many different reasons why it's important, cognitively, socio-emotionally, economically, educationally, you know, there's, mm. so we want, we want to encourage people to keep that language, you know, um, but at the same time, if, um, socializing with large groups of, of the peers who speak the, the heritage language holds you back from getting English experiences outside of school that will definitely slow down your English learning. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's like finding that, that right balance, um, you know, is, is, is tricky. And, and, you know, in Canada, um, we don't usually face this kind of issue. It's more common in the United States and in places like Germany and the Netherlands where we, they have, less diversity in the newcomer population. So in the United States, it's like 80% Spanish. And in, in uh, Germany and Netherlands, it's Turkish. Now there's, there's more Arabic. Um, but you get kind of gangs and ghettos and you get this kind of separation, marginalization of the newcomer community. And in Canada, because we have such diversity among the first languages, it's we see less of this going on as a systematic kind of barrier to integration, just simply because so many like kindergarten classes, let's say, have um, even ones where every child is ESL, they all might speak a different home language. And this kind of, um, you know, uh, prevents the marginalization. Um, so this is interesting for me to, to hear this about because um, the Syrian community, unlike many others, have come in a cohort in like a group. So um, we might see this. But again, I don't want to, um, I think that it's important not to always think that just, you know, reaching ahead in English is the only goal mm. to um, integration, a successful social inclusion and integration and things like that. Mazen, like, you know, we've talked about schools, teachers, the, the refugee children themselves and the different roles they might have to play. What do you think parents themselves have to play uh, with helping their children integrate, not just learning English as a second language, but just integrating into a new country, new community? So I, I think parents play an important role to, uh, to open up the doors for children to allow them to socialize, right? It's, um, I mean, we, we know socialization happens not between parents and, and children, it's between child peers. Uh, that's how you learn cultural norms. That's how you learn language. That's how you learn, um, you know, your your preferences. That's how you assert your identity. But parents play an important role of allowing that process to happen uh, by by being open to new experiences, open to change, open to different possibilities. When you have parents that are closed off to these experiences from having fear that 
maybe the primary language is going to be lost or maybe specific cultural or religious values might be lost, then that fear creates a lot of distrust in the relationship of the child and the parents. And then you're, mm-hmm. you're going to have fragile relationships in a new setting, in a new environment becoming mm-hmm. uh, worse over time. And, and you'll, you're going to start having that child alienate themselves from the family unit. So I think, I think families, it's a really, really hard job to strike a, a balance between having some sort of assertive authority as a parent should have with their children to you know, lay rules and try to teach their children right from wrong, et cetera, but also strike a balance of being open for change, open for development, open for um, experiences that a child should have in a new environment so that the child can develop cognitively, socially, emotionally. So keep an open mind. Is, is, right, uh, right, right, indeed. This has actually been a very eye-opening conversation for me. Um, and I want to round it up with this. Is there anything you feel that we've missed before we round off this episode of the podcast? Well, I mean, this has been a, a great pleasure. To me, the, the biggest um, privilege is, is being part of the journey of, of children coming into the country and, and seeing how they've developed over time. And, mm-hmm. and it's been like such a incredible experience seeing even year to year differences in, in how how they've changed and and how thought processes change and not just language but just the whole person develops it's it's really really interesting um and 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 adversity creates uh either i mean it's, it's a it's, i don't mean to make it very dichotomous but it either really builds in incredible characters or it makes the person extremely vulnerable in society and and you know what makes the person one or the other is that's a whole podcast that we can <laughs> we can talk about many more but uh but it's it's certainly uh language plays a key role in in have in ensuring that the person flourishes um within a society so mm. it's uh, it's been a privilege to be part of it and to, to experience it and see it Thanks, Nazan. And Joanne? Well, I have to say that um, I'm thinking of, you know, what privileges I've, I've, what has been a privilege for me being part of this research and, and research with newcomers in general is that it, it is giving me um, so many sort of insights and perspectives on um, how amazingly um, complex it is to move to a new society and raise a family there and uh, you know for Canadians like me who don't have that in their recent uh, background it's really important to know about this because you know we are a diverse society and so many people our friends neighbors co-workers have been through this you know at various ages and it really isn't straightforward and it isn't simple and it is I admire the resilience I really do I can't imagine myself doing what many of these Syrian families have done fleeing their country with their family and starting over we should have respect for this experience and understand it much much more than than i think we actually do we as you know the the non-recent immigrant canadians like myself and you know if my research can do anything um do nothing else but that uh, i i think that uh, that's meaningful to me Uh, Fida, thank you so much uh, for coming to the refuge. Joanna, Madsen, uh, thank you for saying, um, sharing thank your insight. You. And I had a wonderful time chatting with you all. Likewise. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you for having me.